Discussing the commodities markets, what's happening and why. We talk to the experts, the traders, the investors, and the companies they're investing in. You're listening to Commodity Watch Radio with Dominic Frisbee. Welcome to Commodity Watch Radio, which is hosted in association with Mindsight.com. I'm Dominic Frisby, and today I'm talking to Mike Hampton and Mitch Cope. Regular listeners will know Mike. Mike's an expert trader based in Hong Kong, but formerly of Detroit. And Mike has uncovered a wonderful story, the Powerhouse Project, which is a new venture in Detroit led by Mitch Cope and his partner Gina. The show's a bit crackly at first, but bear with us, we lose the crackle. Mike's going to tell you the story, but we're going to call this show What Happens When the Housing Market Hits Rock Bottom. Mike, how are you doing? I'm very well, Dominic. Good stuff. Well, I'll hand it over to you, and Mike, you can introduce Mitch. Mitch, um, before I introduce you, I just want to give our listeners a little bit of background on your story. And I really have to kind of step back for a second and talk a little bit about Detroit. Now, this is the city okay. of my birth. Um, I was born here in the 1950s. And um, at that time, the population of Detroit was about 2 million people. And um, I found out um, Saturday when we met... I found out from my nephew, who is an architectural student here and knows about these figures, that the population of Detroit now is under 750,000 people. And that's a big drop. That's a drop of nearly two-thirds. And Detroit is one of a handful of cities in the world, cities like Berlin, that are called shrinking cities, where the population has declined quite a lot. And I think Detroit's an interesting story because it's a microcosm of what's happened across America and might happen in other cities all over the world someday. In Detroit, since the 1950s, people have left the city. They've moved to the suburbs. And then recently, in the last five or ten years, not only has Detroit lost jobs as people left to, to move to the suburbs. Mike, um was that movement of pe people from the city to the suburbs, was that what people describe as white yeah, flight? Yeah, well, in fact, it's an interesting point because there is a bit of a racial element to it because um, parts of Detroit, many parts of Detroit um, are predominantly black these days. Um, the area that Mitch is in is called Hamtramck, and it's predominantly Polish, so it's one of the exceptions. Um, but, yeah, I think mostly um, Detroit is run by a black mayor, and a, a black city council. So there is an element of that in the story. Um, but I think that the racial harmony is actually perhaps much improved over the last five years. But that hasn't reversed white flight. So an interesting element of this story, I think, is what happens when a city shrinks, when the population shrinks, to a point where the property market hits rock bottom? Now, in Detroit, you can buy a property today for as little as $100. And that, in fact, is part of Mitch's story. 
And I think, Dominic, you told me you'd seen somewhere that the average... Well, that was right. I was... I was about to butt in with a statistic that I read in Money Week this week, which is that the average home price in Detroit is now $12,500, $12,500. I don't know what it was at the peak, but, I mean, I guess that's about 10% of the bill cost. Well, that's mm -hmm. oh, probably yeah. true. In fact, Mitch, what, what's before? I, maybe I should introduce you at this point, and you can tell us about the house that you bought and the houses that you've been involved with and what they used to cost and what they're worth today. So what I'll say is that Mitch is, like me, born in Detroit, although quite a few years younger than me, um, and he's been an artist, and uh, his wife's an architect. And uh, maybe, Mitch, you can tell us a little bit about how you wound up back in Detroit after trying living some other places. Okay, sure. Um, I, came, well, I came back to Detroit originally to go to school, to go to art school, um, downtown, and that was my first introduction as an adult. I used to come down here with my parents, um, but as an adult, I started living down here to go to art school, and that was for about six years I was living down here, working in the city, living in the city, and kind of experiencing the city in the early was 90s. In, in, the no in the early 90s? Yeah, early 90s, which I would say was really pretty vacant. Really, not too many restaurants, not too many cafes. Uh, really desolate. And, and you told me you told then, me you actually left Detroit and and wound up it pulled you back somehow. Yeah, I I left uh, to go to grad school on the West Coast and went went there to and all I could think about was was Detroit. I, I went there to kind of get away from the city to kind of see what was going on and all I could think about was coming back for some reason. I mean, the city really leaves an impression in your mind. And as an artist, I really wanted to come back and do something, but I wasn't sure what, but so I did. As an Englishman, I don't know a great deal about Detroit, but my recollection in seeing Beverly Hills Cop, yeah. um, the <laughs> film with Eddie Murphy, they, uh, Eddie Murphy's character, Axel Foley, came from Detroit, and there were a lot of kind of Detroit jokes, basically around the fact that Detroit isn't a particularly nice place. Yeah. Is, is that right? Yeah, I think so. I mean, it's perceived as a bit of a kind of dump, basically. But, but yeah, there, I mean, with, within this city, there's a, a strong musical tradition. There's a kind of edginess uh, to the cultural. Oh, absolutely! Art scene. It's the home of Motown, isn't it? Indeed. Yeah, and techno. I mean, a lot of different kinds of things. But yeah, you're right. The perception, especially in the U.S., is is pretty negative. I mean, anything you can think of that's negative of an urban environment, people attribute it to Detroit. What, what drew you back? Because that doesn't sound at the moment like you'd want to come back to such a city, but why? Yeah. Um, I guess two things. One thing was I was really interested in the idea of a city being kind of something where you could build your own and, and something that was had all of this history and all of this art and music, but at the current time was not very active. And the second thing was I really identified, I think, with the people of Detroit and less so of the people of the West Coast. And there's something about the people who live in Detroit that are really, I guess, honest and true and don't screw around too much with, you know, putting up a screen or falsities. And to me, that was really interesting that you could really become close with people really quickly and you knew where you stood really quickly with people in Detroit. So tell us your story, Mitch. You, you came back to Detroit, and, and, and what, tell us what is the Powerhouse Project story? Well, when I came back, 
I did a lot of different things. Uh, I ran an art gallery for a while, which kind of introduced me to the whole idea of uh, not only making art, but prom- promoting art. And then my wife and I ended up opening the store, Design 99, which promotes art and design. And that led us to thinking about wanting to sort of work with houses. And when the foreclosure thing hit, we really saw the opportunity to, to buy yeah, extremely cheap houses. And we saw these houses in our neighborhood, which are still in really good shape, drop from $10,000, $9,000, $8,000 every month. They'd be dropping. And when it got to around $1,900, we bought our first house, which is now we're calling the Powerhouse Project. And the initial idea of this was to turn it around and put all of the money back into it that instead of redoing the electrical and plumbing because they're old and also they were gone, they were stripped out, uh, putting them all into new new ideas of uh, infrastructure. So, so new kinds of DC systems powered by solar and wind and get to the point where we could actually power that house but also power the house next to it. Offer offer under a hundred thousand dollars in the end. And when you and when you say stripped out, somebody had gone in and taken all the pipes. You mean and nicked yeah. all the copper wire and yeah. so on. As soon as by nicked, I mean stolen. Yeah, yeah. As soon as these houses become vacant, there people can, especially a couple of years ago when the when the metal prices were so high, people really move quickly on getting everything out. Mitch, so you you um, you mentioned when I met you on Saturday that. The home you you bought now for nineteen hundred dollars mm-hmm. uh, three or four years ago was worth quite a bit more. Can you give us two a years comparison? ago? Yeah, two two years ago it was listed at, at the value was eighty thousand dollars. So I'm trying to re- kind of in a sense return that value with renewable energy systems um, because the, I mean the value is so low because obviously nobody wants these houses. I mean they're foreclosed because nobody wants it, and then second nobody wants to buy them, so the banks just they're trying to unload all this property, but they can't. Um, but I want to return the value and talk about the, with the house, talk about the value of a neighborhood, the value of the city, and also the value of these old houses, which there's more material, the materials alone in the house are way, worth way more than $1,900. And, and it's, when you, when you just describe the house to me, it's, it's just a, a kind of a regular American house, a detached house with a bit of a yard around it. Is that right? Yeah. I mean, it's an, on a suburban street. Yeah, I mean, it's De- Detroit is an interesting city because it's it's not as urban as some people would think. It's it's mostly made up of single single family houses, you know, isolated single family houses, but in a dense way. It's not what I would think of as a modern suburban landscape. So the the houses are really like five feet apart from each other, with a front lawn and a back lawn. But the house is built in the twenties. My whole neighborhood was built in the twenties, and it's a it was a working class house, meaning it's a about a thousand square feet with an attic and a basement and hardwood floors, you know, plaster walls, big windows, that sort of thing. Nice details. And when you, when you buy a house for $1,900, for, uh, you know, for a low income person, that's about a month's salary, isn't it? I mean, yeah. uh, do you have to pay a load of tax as well or do you, is that all you pay? Well, yeah, the taxes are on this house because it was valued at 80000 and it was also it used to be a rental house. The taxes are 2000 a year. And if, it, if we lived in the house as a primary residence, the taxes would be about $1,000 a year. So, yeah, the taxes are more than the house now a year. But for me, that's, that's fine when you're not paying a mortgage. 
you know, you just, you just, the money's going into fixing it up and experimenting with the house. From here, I mean, basically at $1,900 or $100, mm-hmm. um, which is another house that you're involved in purchasing, um, the, things are really at rock bottom. I mean, mm-hmm. it's really impossible to imagine prices going any lower than that. So what's your idea from, from where we are now at rock bottom? What happens next? Um, How well, do we build the neighborhood? Yeah, that's a good question. Uh, but the first thing we've, we've kind of been trying to do is is stabilize the neighborhood. I mean, that was one reason why we wanted to get the house is because they're just going empty and then they get they get ravaged, they get burnt. And so we want to get a hold of the houses and the first thing is just to secure them and then get people in the neighborhoods. I mean, the neighborhood I'm in is still fairly well intact. Some neighborhoods in Detroit are totally gone, meaning there's not, there's blocks and blocks of nothing left. So the neighborhood I'm in is, there's still a lot of people here, but I can see the point where the houses start burning up and you get you get three houses. When one house is burned, you, you tend to get three houses burning because they're so close. So to get people occupied in the houses is my first concern. The second one is to incorporate art and artists into the neighborhoods because artists tend to want to be much, they're much more proactive, they're much more community oriented and are able to kind of connect with different social groups, different races, different ethnicities and bind the neighborhood together through this thing called art. And that's sort of what we're doing now is is bringing artists from around the world to come here and work with the neighborhood in, on, on many different levels. Now, the story was, was sort of at that point uh, a few months ago, and then mm-hmm. what happened was you've had an explosion of publicity and interest in what you're doing. Now, mm-hmm. I think that started with a newspaper article and a television program. Can you talk about that a little bit? About the, the media? Yes. Uh, yeah, it's, it, I guess it started with a New York Times op-ed piece um, written by uh, a guy named Toby Barlow, who's actually an ad guy, who who in a sense works for Ford, and he was really interested in this idea of of changing the model for a city or changing the model for a home, and especially what's what are the possibilities in a place like Detroit, and that article came out on a Sunday, and that week was. You know, ABC News, CNN, NPR, you know, a lot of people were calling us and wanting the story. And, and it came at a certain time when the, you know, the economy was really hitting a low. And people saw this as, well, maybe Detroit has the answers because the rest of the country is kind of hitting this dip. And Detroit's been going through this dip for a long time. And maybe now, maybe we can learn from Detroit. And so they saw, I guess, our story as a, as a chance to, to, to talk about that. And so you absolutely i mean detroit kind of led the housing market down in a funny kind of way so maybe it'll lead it back up again yeah and people have been dealing with the bad economy in detroit for yeah 50 years now and some people have survived some people haven't survived but the ones who have survived have been really creative in figuring out how to do that with very little economic base can i ask you a question when you when you just described um, those the, the a couple of minutes ago you described areas as just empty mm-hmm. and burnt out and when one house burns three houses burn uh, do you, are people setting fire to these houses and why I don't know if I don't are. know why but there are yeah occasionally there are arsonists who are setting fire to vacant houses and I, I don't know why in the winter time sometimes but I mean they're not using the the uh, it's not because they're cold or something it's a kind of boredom sometimes thing. in the winter you get that where they're they're setting fire 
and then it gets out of control. But right now, the last couple of weeks, we've had, I think, five fires in, a, in like a four-block radius. And I'm not sure why. But it, this has kind of been a problem citywide where people do this boredom. Maybe they're kids. I'm not really sure. You know, it, it, it reminds me, there's famous stories uh, in the Great Slump in, in Germany after World War I, uh, when they had the hyperinflation in Weimar, Germany, where people would burn their furniture yeah. in order to keep well, they're, they're, in order to keep warm in the winter. There are, there are parallels there, I'm sure. Yeah, I mean, there's some extreme poverty in Detroit, and people, there's plenty of houses and plenty of wood, so yeah, people do that as well. And when you say extreme poverty, are people going hungry? Um, there's, yeah, I'd say people are going hungry, but there's there's a lot of systems in place where people don't go, go hungry, but there's a shelter problem. Um, I mean, a lot of the homeless are able to be fed, but they're not always able to have a place to live. And then you add drugs into that, and that becomes more, you know, it compounds it more. Even if even if there's institutions that are willing to help when you have drugs, it's very difficult. I, I, I say this in a very light-hearted way, uh, and this is the stereotypical English view of, of, of the Americans, but, you know, that I know there's a lot of poverty in the States, but hunger is never something you associate with Americans. If anything, it's the opposite. Yeah, I don't see too many, like, really hungry people. It, when you see homeless people, they're generally not really hungry. I mean, there's definitely food around. Okay. Yeah, that's not always as much of a problem. So, Mitch, coming back to the media, um, you, you had a story in the New York Times and then NPR, which is a huge uh, national public radio, uh, might be something like the BBC for listeners in, in the UK. Mm-hmm. And uh, ABC News came and did a story. Um, what's what's the response been to that uh, program on 2020? Um, interesting, because overnight, all, it's, all of a sudden, it seemed like Detroit was the place to live. I mean, we got over 200 emails uh, people that w- said they wanted to move here and could I help them move here and specifically wanting to move in our neighborhood because it seemed like what we were doing was something that they really wanted to be a part of. And some people have shown up. I mean, it's much more comp. You can't just get up and leave. But we've had an incredible response of people wanting to move back into Detroit. And a lot of those have been people who have left Detroit. Um, and, and so what I'm have you really done sh- with that? What have you done with that interest? Well, We've, I, I have realtors that I work with, and I've been trying to feed, you know, feed them in, in their directions, so we don't have to deal with people. Because a lot of them is, can you find me a house? You know, where you, where are you? You know, logistical stuff. Other than that, we posted things on our website that just talk about if you move here, just remember that this is still a difficult city. I mean, it's an amazing city, but you have to understand that this, this is not a utopia because the news, you know, in seven minutes they they produce this image of artists you know taking over the city and rebuilding and all this other kind of stuff but it's not so simple <laughs> so, so, so yeah. you've already had some people um houses you were involved in buying you've already had some friends and artists move into those homes can you say yeah. a little bit about that yeah there's a house next door to where we live and that was foreclosed on a year ago and we bought that house last october for five hundred dollars through the tax foreclosure auction, and then we turned turned around and sold it to some friends of ours for five forty nine ninety nine to make a sweet profit. And we definitely ten percent, ten percent, yeah, yeah, forty nine dollars, uh, yes, yeah. You crooked old uh, exploiting yeah. the <laughs> yeah. Who said artists aren't capitalists? Yeah, uh, there you go. 
Um, but well, I mean, the main reason was we really wanted these these particular people to move in because they were interested in art that deals with social issues and definitely know how to build and rehab. And so we saw it as bringing people in that can kind of help us do what we're already doing. And then the same thing happened where I saw a house on the street that came up for $100. And this was a federally owned house, which is called HUD. And that was, I mean, even cheaper. And so the same thing, I found artists who are now living in Chicago who are are uprooting and moving here uh, this summer to work on that house. When you say art, Mitch, I mean, you're not just talking about people painting what, what, what kind of art is going on and taking place uh yeah that's important it's i guess we, we we it's social art based meaning that it's artists that deal with people and and not always they're not always dealing with the canvas but they're dealing with a neighborhood or people whereas maybe they involve people in creating a, a painting scheme for the neighborhood or we do radio projects where we will we'll do you know semi-legal radio programs in the neighborhood temporarily and, and get the neighbors to come out and produce their own radio. So a lot of projects that involve interactivity. And that's been really important for me, as, as well as working on the house. You know, the, working on the house is a very social thing. You know, people see us tearing out walls or putting in new doors or windows. And, of course, people come up and ask us what we're doing. And then all this conversation starts. And to me, that's a really interesting thing of how you create community, how you, how you get to know your neighbors and then as an artist, there's a certain mindset that goes into it where I, I don't know how to explain it, but um, it's, a, it's a conscious decision to, to, to have conversation as opposed to being annoyed by everybody asking me what I'm doing. It's, it's I stop what I'm doing and I'll talk to them. And then, and then I tell them exactly what we're doing. I tell them what the powerhouse is about and try to educate people about different techniques of building and what an artist is. I, it all boils down to what is the role of an artist in a contemporary society? Is it a painter, you know, somebody who paints and then sells their work in a gallery, or is it somebody who involves, is it more involved in a community aspect? And, I mean, what about kind of locally, local industry and local business? Are people starting to grow their own food? Is is that kind of thing taking place? Uh, Yeah, very much so. That's been going on for a while in Detroit because of uh, the open land. But now I think it's it's taken on more of a it's taken on more of a predominant shape because there's now organizations that help and where you can get they, they grow food over the winter and then in the in the spring you can go and pick up plants for really cheap um, and then my neighbors are also are mostly Bangladesh Bangladesh so they they grow their own food because you can't buy it in the stores and then they maximize their backyards and then I'm helping them work on bigger gardens where I have two empty lots next to the powerhouse that we also bought and we're turning that into a big garden. And and have you had interference uh, from the state? Are they kind of coming in and meddling and saying you can't do this because you haven't paid this tax and you can't do that because you don't have the right permission? Is any of that going on? No, I mean, that's in an odd way, that's one of the advantages of a, a city that's overstrapped. You know, they have too much land, not enough money to control. So you can get away with a lot of stuff in the city, and that's one reason why there's it's a high-crime city. But you can also turn that around, and you can get away with a lot of good things. So you can just take over land without really owning it. And is, is it also the case that the city's so beat up that uh, the state's kind of lost all its power? It's lost its ability to control because it doesn't have the manpower. 
however, lately though, the city has been interested in, in helping people who are doing that, where they'll, they'll actually give you property, they'll loan it to you, and you can garden it or you can take care of it because they know that they can't, they can't take care of it. They'd rather have somebody working it rather than having to come by and mow the lawn or whatever. Um, if I can jump in here, um, one thing I heard from my uh, nephew, who's an architect, is that the city now is was built for two million people and it's got one third as many. Mm-hmm. But there are huge parts of the city that the infrastructure there isn't enough tax base around to support the infrastructure. So they do things like turning off the streetlights at night on certain streets, and of course that accelerates the downturn in those neighborhoods. Um, but it also means that huge parts of the city are really totally abandoned and there's virtually no one living on particular streets. Yeah. And some of those some of those areas where you have like six blocks and there's maybe one person living on those six blocks and so they still have to bring the garbage truck down there or they still have to plow the streets and it's a huge expense for one house, you know, in the middle of nowhere. So they've been trying to actually change that and focus their focus their the little resource resources they have on neighborhoods like mine that are actually self kind of self-regulating or, or, or neighborhoods that have self-organizations already in place. Can you tell, of, tell us a little bit about the, uh, the demographics of your neighborhood? I was about to ask, what about kids and schools and that kind of thing? Well, yeah, in, in, in our neighborhood, it's lots of kids because uh, it's a highly Muslim uh, neighborhood. And then there's an oldish, older Polish, Ukrainian, U- Yugoslavian contingent. Um, but most of those have moved out but there's still some of them left. Then there's Bosnians, Serbians also in here, but the majority is Bangladesh, uh, first-born Bangladesh. And the kids... So, yeah, I was about to say, you, you said first-born, when you said Muslims are Polish, how many, how long have they been in the U.S. for? The the Poles usually is second generation, uh, or third generation, because their parents moved here in the 40s. Um and so there are some people who grew up in the neighborhood who are still here, but most of them have left. And now the, the Bangladeshi families, the parents moved here, and, and most of them have raised the first generation in the neighborhood. And so there's a lot there, there's a lot of kids, you know, teenagers in town. Um, and so the problem, though, is that the school systems in, the, in Detroit are failing. Uh, because of the lack of population, they've been closing schools all over the city, and even when you have areas like mine that have a lot of a lot of kids, they still are closing the schools because they just can't keep them open anymore because the schools are quite big. They're, you know, they're, they're still old and they're still meant for a large city. So now that some of the parents in my neighborhood really complain because they have to drive their kids sometimes 15, 20 miles to, to go to a school, and that's that's, that's, that's really terrible. that's really impossible. That's too much. Yeah. And are you seeing any private? Privately run schools spring out. Yeah, there's a lot of charter schools that are now starting, which which help fill the gap, but it's still not enough of them to fill the gap. Um, there's, there's charter schools and private schools. So some 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 of my neighbors use private schools; they pay their own money, and then charter schools, which you can still use public money to go to. How, how does that work? How does that work? You you can use public money to go to a chartered school. I'm not exactly sure how it works, but the charter schools get. Because the public schools get a certain amount of money from the government, and the charter schools have been able to get the same amount of money. Oh, I see. And then if you take your kid there, then you know they kind of uh, they advertise that they have you know open space, and then however many students they have, they get money. They're able to get public money for it. 
And how many people have moved to the area? How many people have moved to Detroit as a result of your scheme? Um, it's hard to say. I mean, not many right now. There's at least four so far that I know of. And, there, okay. and there's some that are moving from other parts of the city to here. Um, and, and, and how many, yeah, I was going to say, and how many people from Detroit have, uh, you know, who are already there, have got involved in your scheme? Well, there's two that moved in next door to me, and then there's many more that have kind of come here more often to help. Um, so it's, it's pretty small scale at the moment. But there's all these, like these, this new media attention, there's hundreds of people who say they want to move here. But the reality, I don't know, is, is different. And the thing is, it's not so easy to buy these houses that are really cheap. They're not always available because of the real, the real estate market is such a mess. They'll pop up for sale for a month or two, and then they go off the market. I don't really understand what happens. So part of the thing that I've been trying to do is track these houses down and figure out how to get them under control. Okay. And what's your kind of long-term goal with the project? To build up a, a, a significantly sized community. Yeah, build up a... I mean, the community is, is, is nice as it is, but to organize it better and, and to get different kinds of people like artists in here that can help kind of cement the community. So Because there's still people leaving the community and either provide a new kind of economic base that's very locally based or just a different sense for the community, you know, a little bit more hope for the community. And I think a lot of artists are able to provide that by making the community a lot more interesting to live in. One of the um, interesting things you told me, Mitch, on Saturday was that um, because of the cost being so low, it costs a lot less money to sustain your, you know, your life there, and so you can get by on less income. What types of jobs right. do you see developing there? Well, I mean, there's the, the, the neighborhood, you know, Hamtramck is, is a very, like, kind of self... Uh, it's a lot of small businesses, and so a lot of people have opened up their own shops as far as if it's in the Muslim community, opening up sari shops or little restaurants. And so there's there's a little economy based on that. And then, um, yeah, that's kind of the main thing that I know. But there's still there's still industry. I mean, there's still there's still manufacturing here, but on a much smaller scale than it was before. And a lot of them actually do cab are cab drivers. Um, you know, kind of low-skilled labor. But now there's a shift into maybe something a little bit more creative. But your vision really is almost a self-sustainable environment where you're providing your own power yeah. and uh, you're growing some of your own food. So the amount of income from the outside that's needed to really keep this all going is relatively modest. Right. Uh, I'd like to actually hear a little bit more about the Powerhouse Project. Um, how are you getting the solar cells and the other types of equipment that you need to 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 uh, to provide this power? Uh, right now, we, we've been doing it whenever we get a little extra cash from our business, the Design and Nine store. We, if we get a little extra cash, I'll buy a solar panel or a battery. And so, I'm doing it on a very slow basis. Uh, but we have applied for several art grants and different monies. Um, for the project that are kind of kind of in the works at, right now, larger money. But at the moment, we just planned we were just going to do this slowly and and kind of see exactly how much we really need for a house and start backwards. So we get the power and then we find something that will fit it, like a light or a fridge or a heating system that will accommodate the, enough 
power that we have. So we just we work backwards instead of going from a, a house that you're living in and using 300 kilowatts a month, starting in reverse and say, well, if I can get away with one kilowatt a month, what do I really need? So, so it's by you're, need you're gearing your you're gearing your living arrangements to some degree around these power you can generate. Is that right? Well, I'm living the house I live in now is pretty is a pretty standard typical house. We use 250 kilowatts a month in electricity plus gas, and so we've been kind of monitoring what we use and and lowering that, and then buying things for the powerhouse off of what we do. So we kind of use our lives as research, and then we realize okay, well we we could get away with a fridge that only needs a battery and a solar panel, and then we save up a thousand dollars for that and and work from there. I imagine, Mitch, that there's going to be a lot of interest on the part of people around the world, and including some of our listeners uh, and some of the people on GEI, my website, in monitoring how you're actually getting by. Are you, are you going to have a blog or some other record of what you're actually doing day by day? I do have a blog. Yeah, it's kind of it's kind of a stories based on my daily experiences. I usually updated like maybe twice a week. Uh, it's powerhouseproject.com. Slash blog, um, and then you can see. Yeah, definitely, it's more like experiential based, and and it's go, it goes into more detail of like if I'm putting a new system, but it's more about the, my interactive my interactions with the neighborhood. And if if people wanted to donate money to your to your project, is is there a link to do that on on Powerhouse? Yeah, on the PowerhouseProject.com, there's a link to our address, the Design Ninety Nine website, and also a link to our email. Um, and you can mail things to. Another thing might be that there might be some businesses um, around uh, Detroit or elsewhere that would want to somehow uh, tap into the experimentation that's going on and, and use you as a kind of uh, showcase for what uh, what their solar cells or other equipment might do. Are you making yeah. any connections with companies? Um, we've tried. We've been unsuccessful so far because a lot of the companies in the U.S., uh, don't deal too much with residential. Some do, but so far we haven't been able to work anything out. And that's something we really are interested in, is using the house as an experimental site, for sure. So we're totally welcome to that. And so, in a way, if you could come up with a sort of kit that um, someone could buy who was a neighbor of yours or someone else in another city even, uh, to copy what you're doing, down the road that might be something that you could demonstrate in, in your house that such a kit actually works in generating yeah. decent power. Yeah, that's what we're working towards, is how we could use houses as power generators and then sell that kit. So, you you know, so whoever, whatever company comes on board, they become part of that kit, and then it creates this whole kind of network from that, for sure. And how are the neighbors responding? I mean, uh, are some of the neighbors starting to step forward and volunteer to help out? Yeah, people volunteer for for labor and the help of the garden, and but mostly they're interested in just seeing it. You know, they're curious to see what happens next, and a lot of them are pretty anxious to see it, the house change. Because as of yet, I mean, we haven't had we haven't done any super major things. We've painted it, we've added a couple of solar panels and some lights, but it's not as dramatic as we would like it to be. So the neighbors are really interested to see it move forward for sure. But a lot of them don't have experience. A lot of them have experience in building, but not necessarily in renewable technologies. And I don't either. I mean, this is all an experiment for me too. 
And you mentioned something when I met you about geopower as well, that there was a plan maybe to drill a well down and tap into mm-hmm. some heat uh, hundreds of feet down. Mm-hmm. Is there any immediate plan to develop that? Uh, yeah, that's definitely a bigger expense, but I'm working with a group called Warm Training Center in Detroit that, that are helping us kind of assess how much we need as far as heating, because that's heating. And in, in Detroit, most of your utility bill goes towards heating. Um, so if we can knock that down, that's a big interest. Uh, that's a really important part of it. So we're working with a group to kind of at least assess how much we really need, and then we can figure out how we can get funding for it. That's really important, well, actually. Well, Mitch, I, I think this has been a really interesting story to hear, and I'd like it to be a continuing one, at least on my website, where we can keep an eye on what you're doing and maybe some of my uh members on GEI will have some ideas and suggestions and maybe even one or two of them will want to get involved in, uh, in what you're actually doing there and move to Detroit. You never know. Absolutely. I'm just, uh, I just hope the same thing doesn't happen here in London. My <laughs> goodness me. I mean, uh, you can't, I mean, London's, uh, as I'm sure you know, it's a booming city. Right. And Detroit's been in a, I, I think the same thing could happen, Mike, in um, some of the great industrial cities of the north of England, where, um, you know, the real time when we made things in the north of England, I'm thinking Newcastle, maybe even Manchester or Liverpool, when, you know, these are basically cities that have been in decline since the major factories were shut down. Um, I, I don't see the same thing happening in London. But um, but for me, it's, a, it's, it's kind of an important thing to note that it's, it's not always about, I mean, there's the cheap property, which is about getting the property. But it, to me, it's also if you already have the property, it's learning how to retrofit those into renewables and not, you know, the, the idea is that you have to spend a fortune on this stuff. But sometimes it's just the small steps and also kind of being creative about it is another element. And it's not always about, yeah, getting the $100 house. It's about, Absolutely. it's about how Absolutely. art deals with renewables and the and the community is sort of the main idea for me. Well, Mitch, I think you 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 um, called your project a blank canvas. The one hundred dollar house was a sort of blank canvas that gave you the ability to experiment and create an artistic living arrangement in a new environment. A blank canvas with the paints available. That's yeah. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, because so much of the, the, the way we're going is, is not going to be about building new things, but it's going to be about uh, finding creative ways to use what we already have. Right. Well, um, Mitch, uh, Mitch Cope, it's been a real pleasure talking to you. And Mike Hampton, thanks very much for, for coming on the show once again and, and for, uh, you know, uncovering Mitch and his story. And, and, and do come on the show. Maybe we'll speak to you again in about six months or a year and, and find out how you're getting on. But, gentlemen, um, thanks very much. Mitch, do you want to give out your website in case people want to find out more about you? Yes, it's powerhouseproject.com. Good stuff. And, Mike, why don't you give out yours? Yes, it's uh, Global Edge investors.com um, there'll be a thread there actually already is a thread about the powerhouse and also about the $100 house but I'll put a prominent perhaps we'll put a prominent link from Commodity Watch into that excellent and perhaps uh, you, one of you two might send me some pictures and I'll put them up on the home page as well so that we can see okay. what you're doing um, gentlemen it's been a real pleasure thank you very much thank, thank you. you Dominic 
Commodity Watch Radio is presented and produced by Dominic Frisbee for Mindsight with music by Manolo Camp. To discuss the markets and have your say, why not visit our bulletin board at globaledgeinvestors.com. That's globaledgeinvestors.com.